there's just so much passion and determination amongst our youth today. And it really is about finding the right channels and the right opportunities to allow them to thrive and to shine. Hi, I'm Safia Virji. I'm the Innovations Manager at the Kenya Red Cross Society. And you're listening to Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 1 of Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, Gut, Double G, UWT, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch Gut Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Safia Virgi, Innovation Manager at the Kenya Red Cross. And currently her role includes exploring different ways of doing things to be more effective and efficient in the way the organization delivers humanitarian aid to the most vulnerable. This includes co-designing solutions with disaster-affected communities, ensuring that the organization incorporates and leverages on local ideas. Her role also includes taking risks and piloting existing innovations through long-term development projects with a particular focus on technology, such as blockchain, digital identities, and IoT. Safia, it's really great to see you and to be here with you behind the screen this time around. Um, how are you and who are you? Thanks, Maria. Super happy to be here and to be talking with you again. Like you mentioned, I'm Safia Virgi. I am the Innovations Manager at the Kenya Red Cross Society. But more than that, I am Kenyan. I am a mother of a two and a half year old, so tantrums are the norm of our household. I'm also a dog mom. I am passionate about humanitarian issues. I'm passionate about working with women and youth to come up with exciting ideas and solutions that can solve our own problems. Um, I love meeting new people who have exciting ideas and looking for ways to collaborate which is why I'm really excited to be talking to you right now to share some of those insights and thoughts. Awesome. So obviously you're really passionate about what you do. And I know that you do travel and you will be traveling again when things will open up, but you go around Kenya and also abroad. So what made you do what you do? So I grew up here in Kenya and I think from a very young age, I always wanted to do something that had a social good associated with it. And initially that started out as a humanitarian lawyer. So actually, for my undergrad, I applied for law school. And before you go to law school, you have to do like an undergrad degree, right? And I couldn't hack all the reading and the research and stuff. And so I ended up doing a Bachelor of Commerce because I felt like business marketing degree would also be quite useful to have. And then when I thought about coming back home, I thought, what would be a good field to go into where I can actually work with people that are marginalized or that have less than us. And I went into the field of public health 
because, yeah, as a country, we face many health issues from the disease transmission perspective to system strengthening to just our general capacities. So I did my master's in public health and came back and joined the Kenya Red Cross as an intern and got experience working with health projects, focusing on maternal and child care. And then once I became a full-time employee, I was focusing on food security projects, disaster risk reduction, uh, wash, uh, so water sanitation hygiene projects, all working at really building resilience and strengthening resilience within local communities. But throughout this whole journey within Kenya Red Cross, that's about six or seven years, I really was very much inclined to this whole concept of innovative approaches or innovation. Like how can we really look at each situation as its own and develop a solution that is very context specific? So a lot of the time, because of the emergency nature of our organizations, we often take one solution and replicate it in another context, thinking that the outcomes will be the same. And usually these solutions or these ideas come from outside of the communities, whether it's quarters sitting in Nairobi or it's a solution that, let's say, the Red Cross movement have tried in another country. So for me, it was how can we use emerging technology and emerging approaches to the solutions that we're coming up with? But more importantly than that, how do we keep the target communities or the end users at the very center of each solution from the design stage to testing a solution to scaling up the solution? So I felt like maybe that was something that was starting to fall through the cracks because we work in a very fast-paced environment and we make a lot of assumptions. So having community ownership can help the sustainability of any solution or innovation. Cool. Thank you for the whole contextualization of your entire transition. And I was mentioning actually that you do travel and you tap on that one. You said you make many assumptions and hence why you travel around the territory to understand what's happening on the ground, you and your team. Um, we're going to tap into this, actually. And I want to share this, that when I was there, because you organize lots of hackathons, you source ideas from communities and so on, um, you invited some of the participants of one of the hackathons you did. And there was a guy who traveled 10 hours by bus to Nairobi just to listen to an hour of you know pitching and how to pitch and stuff like that, got feedback and was going back the same day by bus. 10 more hours. So he spent 20 hours out of 24 hours of the day traveling for one hour. Can you expand a little bit on the potential you have in Kenya? Because you have lots of gifted individuals. How are you leveraging that and giving them an opportunity? Yes, you're absolutely right. And I remember the situation that you're talking about. And somehow I wasn't as surprised as you were because it wasn't the first time that I had seen something like that. Um, first time I had that experience and it will never leave me. It was 2015 and we were hosting the Innovation Challenge for fire safety within informal settlements. So we put out a nationwide call, we shortlisted the applicants, and then we were having the pitches. And one participant came and he did his presentation using flip charts. And so, of course, our initial reaction was, this guy's not serious. Like, how do you not come with a proper digital presentation for an innovation challenge, right? Because he had literally drawn his solution. And so when that question came up as to like, why did you draw your solution as opposed to presenting it? He's like, well, on my way here, my laptop got stolen. 
and I hadn't saved the presentation. So as soon as I got here, I drew it because I didn't want the opportunity to miss. And to be honest, like even thinking about it right now, I feel very emotional because one, we're so quick to judge, first of all, but second of all, like how much passion and determination must you have to walk into that room to not explain what's happened to you and to still go ahead and present your solution. And so what we ended up doing was coming together and putting a little bit of money together so that he could end up buying a new laptop. But I think that completely reflects on what you're saying is that there's just so much passion and determination amongst our youth today. And it really is about finding the right channels and the right opportunities to allow them to thrive and to shine. And so maybe that's a good point or a good place for me then to even talk about one of our biggest projects, which is the fabrication and innovation lab that we've set yeah. up in Lamu that's specifically Absolutely. targeting the youth of this country. It's in Lamu, which is at the coast of Kenya, um, like a beautiful set of islands, blue waters, white beaches, just like heaven. But unfortunately, there's a big problem with drug and substance abuse, unproductive youth and terrorism. And it's almost like there's just not enough of the right opportunities for the youth. Lamu is very rich in traditional skills and culture. And somehow the work that it takes to achieve those skills is just something the youth these days are not willing to put time into learning because we're more digital. We're more that generation of instant gratification. You know, we don't have a lot of patience for the end product or revenue or income come in every six months, for example. We're very much fast paced and that's sort of filtering down into the coast and into Lamu. And so what we hope to achieve with the lab is to take these traditional skills of the past, introduce equipment and machinery that's very much of this modern world and merge the two together so that we can shift or we can project Lamu into this future that's coming, which can be modern, beautiful, innovative designs that have a link to their past, that have a link to their culture and their traditions. But more so than that, it's about youth living across the country who need a safe space to come and share their ideas and get mentorship and guidance in designing and building prototypes. So those kind of facilities will more often than not are available in major urban cities in Kenya. So Nairobi, Mombasa, Kisumu. But like talk about two, three years ago, and it was only in Nairobi. And these facilities won't even be accessible without a membership. But think about somebody living in a low income area that has an idea, like what opportunity do they have to pitch it, to build a prototype, to even see if it's feasible. And that's what we want to do. We want the space to be accessible to anybody and everybody, no matter what their interests are. And we want it to be focused on humanitarian activities. We want to design and develop solutions that address maternal and child health care, that address saline water issues. How do you promote hygiene practices? How do you build sensors for early warning? So Things that can be then invested in by the donor community because we already have proof of concepts and then scale them up and make these devices affordable to even the most marginalized. So you're saying that the innovation lab will be the hub to ideate or come up with kind of a prototype or an idea while being there. And then you will have the potential and support those people to scale and turn whatever they're doing into a business okay. as well. That's, exactly. Exactly. Uh, So while we're developing solutions for humanitarian challenges, we're also addressing the concept of the issue of economic empowerment. Okay. And you kind of mentioned hygiene. 
I want to ask you, you had some challenges during the pandemic as well, and you introduced blockchain-based Sarafu e-vouchers. Can you yeah. expand a little bit on this initiative? Yeah, sure. So um, there's a foundation in Kenya called Grassroots Economics. They've been working here for about 10 plus years using community currencies to sort of facilitate trade with amongst and within communities. And the idea of that is that low-income communities don't have to spend Kenya shillings on things that they can trade amongst each other. So if you're looking at you and me living in a community and you sell water and I sell chickens, yet we have no money to purchase these things from each other. What does that mean? Does that mean you stay with your chicken and I stay with my water? Like, um, And there's just, I have something you need, you have something I need, and somehow we can't get it from each other. So we agree on a cost of each unit. And so maybe one of your chickens is 10 liters of water of mine. And so amongst each other, we agree on those quantities and we're able to trade with each other. And so about 10 years ago, when it was first introduced, it was using actual paper printed out money. But now it's sort of shifted to a more digital platform backed by blockchain. So each transaction is recorded. We can see which set of people are trading in and stuff. And so from a Red Cross perspective, we were really interested in this idea because if you're looking at early recovery efforts, And now what we're doing is getting into cash transfer programs as opposed to handouts of food and non-food items because cash sort of gives the choice to the affected person on what they'd like to spend on. Uh, and we were giving like $30 a month. And out of this $30, 80% is spent outside of that community. And within that disaster-affected community, there's no circulation of that cash, right? There's very limited circulation of that cash. And so that community never really rises out of poverty. And so their resilience is still quite limited to disasters. But now with Sarafu, uh, Sarafu means currency in Swahili, and it's digital. What it essentially does is allows somebody who gets cash transfer to keep that cash, and they trade using Sarafu. And then as and when needed, they're able to spend the Kenya shillings on more essential items. So they're not spending their Kenya shillings on basic necessities. They have enough for rent. They have enough for school fees. They have enough for healthcare because buying food, buying water, buying soap or sanitizer can all be taken care of by using Sarafu. And the reason why we thought it was a good idea to pilot this during COVID is because the national currency became scarce. Um, there are a lot of people that earn wages on a daily basis here in Kenya, especially in informal settlements. And so when COVID hit, when we got into like almost an economic lockdown, Um, there just suddenly wasn't this daily income coming in. And so people then couldn't afford to put food on the table. But now with using Sarafu, they're now able to at least meet those daily needs. So make sure that they have soap to wash their hands. They have water to wash their hands. They have food to eat. They can manage to pay the rent if the landlord agrees to accept Sarafu. So that was our thinking behind it. We definitely had some teething problems, as all new innovations do, especially... Yeah explaining the context or the concept to the end users. Um, but these are all lessons that we learned. And now we're piloting in Mombasa again in an informal settlement. And we're using it now for early recovery efforts. So now that the livelihoods are starting to pick up again, become more stable, they can use the Kenya shillings that they're getting for cash transfer to invest in their business. And then they use Serafu to meet other household needs. So they don't need to use 
the Kenya shillings, okay, let's say, okay, we put 50% in the business and 50% will be to pay rent, to buy food and to buy water. So there's a lot more cash going into livelihood recovery and Seraph was supporting basic needs. So that's one of our innovative projects. I'm sure you faced challenges. And what was the process actually of testing this? Did you go in and understand from them what is it that they need and then design this accordingly? Or you kind of already knew, did you involve the stakeholders from those communities at the very beginning? Yes, grassroots economics had already been doing this. So the, the product or the solution was already pretty much designed. Okay. It was digital. So the interface is very similar to how we use MSA. So how to use it wasn't very difficult to learn for a lot of community members, especially since we were talking about urban settings where people use their phone or mobile money to pay for a lot of things. So, of course, there had to be a lot of sensitization and engagement at all levels of government and community because we at no point did we want this to be seen as competing with the national currency or competing with platforms like Mpesa. Um, it totally does not compete with any of those. It's just a different sort of, let's say, a digital barter trade. For yeah, so I, th I think you leveraged on what Impesa has done a few years ago. <laughs> so yes. that was helpful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We've continued to do a lot of stakeholder engagement because there's a lot of misconceptions around can we cash out Serafu for Kenya Shilling? So people hoarding the Serafu because actually the more you trade it, the more you're actually receiving, right? Okay. Now that's interesting to see how it's going to evolve and become adopted nationwide and beyond across the continent yeah. as well. Because I know that as the Red Cross, you work across the continent, right? Yeah. Kenya Red Cross is just only in Kenya as per the mandate of the Red Cross movement. So each country has their own national society. So we work just within the Kenyan borders. But of course, if called upon, we would support any other national society. But then you have the International Federation of the Red Cross Societies, and they sort of act as an umbrella for all of the national societies. And I want to go back a little bit to the Innovation Lab in Lamu, because that was one of the highlights of last year that you launched. What were the challenges of getting it off the ground? So actually, it's quite sad because we had aimed to be completed with construction by about April last year. Um, but of course, in March, COVID hit and all of a sudden there were county border lockdowns, limited number of personnel allowed to be on site and suppliers closed down. And so literally the project ended up delaying until about September. So by the time we finished construction, it was September. And then I think with just general COVID impact, we got all of our equipment coming in from the States. So that also took quite a while to get in and clear. And then again, the county lockdowns meant that taking the equipment from Nairobi to to Lamu also took ages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so COVID really affected our completion. But finally, by October, we opened. At least we're able to use some of the machines now and slowly get people interested in coming into the lab. And um, we're not fully furnished yet either. So the idea was to use the local artisans and craftsmen, plus our internal staff and volunteers to design and build furniture for the lab. So there's still quite a few spaces that are unfurnished. But it's coming together really nicely. We have a few programs set up in terms of recycling and upcycling week. So we're looking at all these sort of leftover materials from the construction. How can we design and build something out of them? 
And the idea is if we get a prototype, then that's something we can then look at uh, how can we mainstream it or how can it become a skill for some of the local craftsmen. We're also launching a uh, program for kids to start getting excited and interested in STEM. We also did an online semi-virtual digital fabrication training as well to get people interested in this whole fabrication space of 3D printing, CNC machines, laser cutting. So yeah, we're there. You're there. Yeah. Finally, you made it and an achievement to be able to launch it with the pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully you will get more engagement safe engagements because it looks like it's just going mad everywhere let's stay positive on that one you know it's also an opportunity to do things differently but again it depends on the access and digital access you have in the country too so that's another challenge as well i want to ask you as well about the humanitarian realm in general because you've been doing that for a number of years now And you've been involved at different stages and levels of the Red Cross, as you mentioned earlier. How do you see fundraising and the evolution of raising money for charities and humanitarian aid in general? Do you think people have trust? Do you think they're changing their perception on things? Do you think they do want to donate more? Do they want to engage more? How did this evolve over time? I'd say in the last few years, the landscape of fundraising and donations has really changed. Information is a lot more readily available than it was, let's say, 10 years ago. Even tools for measuring impact is a lot more evolved than it was before. And a lot of this has to do with focusing on evidence-based solutions. And now I think with other emerging challenges, especially in the traditional donor countries. So if you're talking about Europe or the States, you had the whole refugee migration issues. And now with COVID, funds or money that was set aside for international aid is now being channeled back to national response. And so funds are not super readily available. I also think that in places like Kenya and other countries like ours, you have a lot of NGOs and humanitarian organizations working in silos. So we're all basically targeting the same community, doing the same interventions, but we're getting different funding for it. And you get a lot of duplication and repetition of activities. And so I think funding is also now becoming more attractive when you have consortium of partners who've come together, joined forces, and are now implementing together. So I think from the ground here, a lot more effort needs to be made in terms of local partnership and looking for other ways to force for funding together. And that can mean, you know, like advocating at the government level or even advocating with private companies here within the country. Um, I think also, especially in terms of innovation, a lot of donors are willing to fund the first sort of few steps of design and ideation and prototype testing. But then there's no sort of confirmed funding for iterations and scale up. So and that's a huge gap because sometimes you'll get like one year funding for to take it to prototyping. So I think there also needs to be a little bit more in terms of the time investment. So if you are investing in an innovation, give it three years, give it five years so that we can go through iterations, we can go through design tweaks, we can test it in different contexts so that we really develop a solution that can be the best it can be to offer humanitarian assistance. So yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that we also face with innovation is just short-term funding. 
Okay, you mentioned something interesting here because you talked about collaboration. And this is something actually I wanted to ask you as you were talking, because this helps donors as well, or gives them kind of comfort to see that it's not in silos. So is the fact that you're working with partners as a consortium, does this give comfort and allow donors to trust you more as an organization or a collective of organizations? Hence, they donate money for something that is tangible. So they want to see something in return. Exactly. So Innovation Norway is funding two of our innovation projects on digital identity and the Serafu. And so what they keep saying is that we are more inclined to fund partnerships or consortiums. Like that is super important to us because we do not want duplication of activities. We do not want to hear that we've supported this organization and then another organization is coming to do the same thing in the same area with the same beneficiaries. It's not value for money. It's not giving us impact that we want. And it literally just doesn't make sense. And even for us as aid organizations, it gets really complicated and confusing when we're reaching the same communities with cash transfer. How do you know your funds are the one that's making the impact or the difference? So I believe that that's what donor agencies are finding quite attractive. And also something I forgot to mention earlier is emerging technology like blockchain also makes organizations more credible because there's a trail of transactions, there's transparency, there's accountability, there is reduced risk of fraud. And I believe like incorporating emerging technology in our systems and our procedures also make us more attractive to donors because you're more trustworthy. Yeah, I resonate with what you're saying because Other Dots Foundation, which is the foundation I'm involved in as well, that was the starting point as well, because me as a donor and my experience, I don't know where the money is going. And now with those technologies, some people might not even check, but it gives them the possibility to know where their money is going. But on top of it, you can measure the impact. And this is what makes a difference. Like there are organizations who are not willing to do that, unfortunately, but many, and you guys are doing it and you want to do it as much as we can actually, because this will make a massive difference and that will be the way to go. And then people, if they don't want to check, they won't check. But those who are interested in knowing and because they're there for the long term and to actually make an impact, even if it's just $1, they will know where it's going. I think the opportunity you have as well in Kenya is that the infrastructure is not completely there. So you have so much potential of doing things that in developed countries, it will take much longer to achieve that as well. So that's really cool. And it leads me actually to another question, which is when you undertake an activity and obviously you have to make decisions as well into, okay, who's going to join the lab or which organization you trust and you're going to go with. So at many different aspects, I'm just zooming out from what we were talking about, but do you actually trust your gut when you're, when you're about to make those decisions? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. Um, I think when you've been in the space, long enough you have to go with your gut especially even in the innovation field because we're talking about risk taking or talking about ideas that could potentially fail right and so as much as we try calculated risk there's something inside you that says this could actually work 
And I think for me, Sarafu was one of those gut moments because I'm like, I don't even know if I fully understand how this works, but something about it tells me that this could help or complement cash programs. This could give donors a glimpse into value for money because we will see how many times Sarafu is being traded. So the multiplier effect of trades will also show, right? And so we'll be able to see like, if this was to be backed up by actual funds, if we were to go that route, then we would see that $1,000 actually circulated within that economy 20 times. So that $1,000 has $20,000 worth of trades, right? And I think that was where my gut really kicked in because I'm like, I don't know if I understand it, but I feel like this could work. And it was a calculated risk. And yeah, there've been challenges. Yeah, there've been issues where people think we're replacing national currency. But the founder, uh, Will, from Grassroots actually was put in jail because they thought he was trying to introduce a new currency. This was 10 years ago. So I think your gut kind of kicks in when you're thinking, is this a calculated risk? And so, yeah, it was. And even with the innovation lab, yes, gut was there, but also passion. Like you really believe in it. You really buy into the idea and you see the possibilities and the difference that it can make in the lives of the youth, of innovators and people who are just interested in making a difference, no matter who you are. You don't have to be an expert in DRR or in WASH. You just have to have an idea and the help, the expertise will come from everyone around you. And that's what we want to do. Um, and I think that that's the message also that we'd like to say, if you just have the passion, if you just have the right intentions, we'll come together and we'll make it a reality. Yeah, for sure. That's actually the secret is just wanting to do it. And then as you're saying, you're providing a platform to be able to yeah. do this. I'm going to plug Clubhouse here, but I don't know if you're on it already, but it's just <laughs> massive. You have lots of value and people wanting to help each other mm-hmm. or share knowledge. But at the same time, you have lots of sales pitches. But still, if you navigate your way through, you can maybe find who could help you because there are really genuine people out there who want to do it. Um, And then also you don't have to have a lot of money. Like we're not asking for millions of dollars. Like that would be really nice. But for us to start making a difference and to get things moving, just a little bit from different sources from here and there can actually make a really big difference. So we have to be smart about our marketing and our connections and our network as well. Yeah, we have to yeah. be innovative. It's not the traditional way of doing business. Yeah. That's we're asking literally for a $1 donation. $1. <laughs> like yeah. that's what we want. But if we put yeah. one and one and one, it can make a big difference. It makes, and... yeah, it's like saving, right? Like 10, yeah. 10 shillings a day make a difference at the end of the year. So yeah. 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 No, cool. No, that was brilliant. Is there anything you would like to add, by the way, or mention that we didn't tap into? Uh, something also quite exciting is towards the end of March, what we're trying to do with, with IFRC based in Geneva is to do a virtual tour of the lab, of Lamu and the lab, because a lot of people obviously can't visit Lamu right now. Yeah. But how to explain what the lab looks like is also quite challenging. So we thought we would do like arrive in Lamu, you sort of experience the boat rides, we take a walk through the old town, you sort of see the architecture, some of the craftsmen and how they're doing their work. We get to look at their old tools and stuff. And then once we can appreciate that, then we sort of head over to the lab and then we do a live tour of the lab and see how the two link. I will forward you that invite once we're ready. Cool. Is that open to the public? Uh, Yeah, it will be. Cool. And for people who want to find you, find more about what you guys do, where can we find you? 
My Twitter handle is Safia V. That's a good way. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Cool. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Safia Virgi. No, and your name will be written in the blurb. No, thank you so much for that. That was brilliant. That was refreshing. It's always good to hear that people are trying to make a difference and doing it actually. And I love the fact that you just trusted your gut and you went for it actually with the sorrowful thing and you acted quickly. So thank you so much for that, Safia. No worries. Thank you, Maria. My pleasure. We spoke about the transition from a project-based initiative to innovation and scaling with technology. We spoke about human-centered design, designing, testing, and scaling in a fast-paced environment. We spoke about the community and the ownership, untapped potential, courage, passion, and determination. We spoke about the Innovation Lab in Lamu, of course, its mission and vision for the youth and the vulnerable communities. We mentioned the Innovation Lab taking skills of the past and transitioning them into the present and the future. We spoke about gut feelings, risk-taking, and collaboration, which is key for greater impact. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.